Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you're listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. My guest today is Dr. Beth Allison Barr, professor of medieval history at Baylor and the USA Today's best-selling author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood. We talk about how Waco's changed since she grew up in Mejia visiting the big city, how her definition of biblical womanhood has evolved, and her thoughts on the Lenten and Easter seasons. But first, it's the Business Review with C.J. Jackson. Changing the culture. I'm C.J. Jackson, and this is the Business Review. Caustic cultures in the workplace can be draining and slowly wear away at human dignity. David Dye, president of Let's Grow, shares how to make the best of a corrosive workplace situation. When we talk about caustic culture, those are corrosive cultures. They're not fun places to work, and sometimes that's because they're abusive. But usually the common element is that they're not acknowledging the humanity and the people in that culture. Dai says you can't lead effectively if you feel like a victim. So before you can lead your team, you've got to reclaim your own power to build a new culture together. The easiest way to do that is to recognize what influence you do have. What are the decisions you can make? So even if the entire rest of the organization chooses to be abusive and use people and treat them like numbers, you can make a different choice. That next step might be as simple as, you know what, when I get into the office today, or when I get on the floor today, I'm going to find somebody doing something right and encourage them and thank them for doing it and tell them why it matters. Dai encourages spending time with others who are like-minded. Find the others. Who is there in another department who feels the same way? And start spending time together. But you get to create that oasis. You get to create that pocket, that envelope of excellence where people are treated with dignity and respect on your team. Pretty soon you will have built a culture and you have a chance to transform your entire culture from the inside out. The Business Review is a production of Livingston and McKay and the Handcammer School of Business at Baylor University. You can hear the Business Review every Thursday during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. And you can find past episodes online at kwbu.org.
The beginning of March signals the Lenten season and leading into Easter for the Christian tradition, and I always try to bring on a different local thought leader at this time of year. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Beth Allison Barr to the program. Dr. Barr is the James Vardman Endowed Professor of History at Baylor University here in Waco. Welcome to Downtown Depot. Thank you. What's your Waco history, Dr. Barr? So I grew up in a town, um, Mejia, not very far from Waco. My father was the family doctor in Mejia. We moved there in 1980. So I pretty much grew up coming to Waco as the big town. Um, It's where we came to see movies. It's where we came to eat at the really one of only three restaurants in town here. I was, we used to always go to JT McCord's. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but that was always a highlight for us to get to go to JT McCord's. We also used to go to another barbecue place that is no longer here. It actually closed down a long time ago. And then occasionally after Chili's opened, we would go to chilies. So those were the choices, but we would come over and go to the theaters that now have either become dollar theaters or gone out of business altogether. But I have a lot of memories of driving up to Waco for either shopping, movies, or restaurants um, since I was from the small town. So Waco has always been a part of my life. And even when we moved to grad school, My family still lived in Waco, so Waco was where we came on vacation and the holidays. Are you surprised as someone who had been in Waco decades ago at the ways that the city's transformed? I wonder what has struck you as, oh, I knew this was going to happen, or, oh, that's kind of surprising. Oh, no, it was shocking. Um, Waco... I never I never imagined Waco would be what it is today. I love what it has become in so many ways. And I'm very happy for what it has become, but it's not something that I ever expected to happen. Here we are in the beginning of March, and we're in the Lenten season in the Christian tradition. Lent leads into the Easter season, and I wonder what Lent means for you specifically as someone who um, is a believer, and I'm sure you've gone through periods of construction and deconstruction (laughs) and reconstruction and of where you are in your faith. But Lent, when you think about it. Yeah. So um, I am Baptist. I grew up Baptist. We had a period of time in our life where we weren't Baptist. We are non-denominational. But mostly the Baptist world is my background, which was not a very liturgical world. However, I'm a medieval historian, which means I study medieval Christianity. So I actually have a lot of expertise in the liturgical practice and even thinking about medieval um, church going, especially Easter was the high point. Uh, Most of the sermons that I actually study are Lenten sermons um, because they're a time when they're trying to get people to come to church and to go to confession and to participate in the Eucharist. And so they're very outward reaching these types of sermons. And so I find that there's lots of um, emphasis on women within these sermons, which is what I study. So I primarily study Lenten sermons, if you really think about the ones that I'm mostly interested in. Um, I find it, I often am amused by the interest in liturgical practices um, from people who come from non-liturgical backgrounds and the things that they choose to emphasize and the things that they have no idea about. So I often find Lent to be, in some ways, it's interesting to me to see people engaging with these old practices again. I love that. I think that 
the way that we have chosen to engage it, though, is very different from the way people engaged it in the past. Like often when I think about Lent and people tell me that they're giving up chocolate for Lent and I'm like, hmm, um, <laughs> you know, I'm glad you're doing that. I'm glad it means something to you. I'm not exactly sure if that would have fit in the historical tradition of how people practiced Lent. So as for me, I find it, you know, we're still Baptist. I'm even though I understand liturgy and work very much in the liturgical world, I'm much more comfortable in an ecumenical in, in a Baptist world. So we mostly don't practice liturgical within our church. But I always love talking and engaging, especially with my students who go on Ash Wednesday and the students that don't understand why everybody's wearing ash on their foreheads. And I love to have those conversations with my students. Why are people wearing ash on their foreheads? (laughs) It is a symbol of their confession um, that they are going into this period of um, Lent where they recognize the... um, where they recognize their sins and they recognize their need for a savior. And of course, it's building all the way towards, you know, I always tell people that if I could have attended a medieval service, I would have loved to have attended the Easter services um, because they just had this, you know, this, if we think about the sunrise service, you know, medieval people on the Friday, Good Friday, um, they would end the service in darkness and everybody would leave the church in silence and darkness. Um, and then very, very early on Sunday morning, um, they would come back to the church, the whole community, and they would decorate it in flowers, and they would remove the veils from all of the altar pieces. And so when the sun came up um, and they celebrated the resurrection, they would have transformed their churches um, into this into a celebration of life and the celebration of Christ. And that actually, if I could go back in time, I would go back in time to see a medieval practice of an Easter service um, across that. So that's actually something that I really wish. Um, I would love to find a church maybe that actually practiced in that medieval style because I would love to get, be there and see that. I've always had a dream to have a time machine that can only be used for good purposes like that, largely innocuous. I'm not yes. going to go back and kill baby Hitler. No. I just want to go back and see that's what only this thing. was like. Yeah, that's the only thing. I would love to have gone back to the 15th century and um, to have seen that. Um, so if I had a, you know, I often tell students, they're like, wouldn't you have, would you have wanted to live in the past? And I'm like, no. I really like running water. <laughs> I really like all my modern conveniences. But I wish there are some things I could see, and I'd love to see medieval Christianity in practice. Your work is particularly in vogue right now because of a book that you wrote, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. You look it up on Amazon or Goodreads, literally thousands of people saying, Dr. Barr has taken all of the feelings that I had, but I didn't know how to contextualize. And and you put it out in a really, I think, honest way as the wife of a pastor, as someone who's still a card-carrying member of the Southern Baptist denomination. What did you grow up thinking that biblical womanhood was, and how has your conception of true biblical womanhood changed? Oh, yeah. Um, So to take the second part of that, I actually don't think there is a single form of biblical womanhood. I think God calls women and men to work in the world in um, a whole variety of ways, as well as very similar ways to each other. Um, And so I think biblical womanhood is whatever God calls a woman to do. Um, And I think that's the most biblically grounded understanding of it as well. Uh, For me growing up, I did grow up Southern Baptist. Um, I suspect 
the Southern Baptist world no longer has the church that my husband and I are in on their SBC roster. <laughs> I haven't looked lately. It was historically a Southern Baptist church, but um, we haven't sent messengers to the SBC in a long time. And so we mostly affiliate with the BGCT. Um, so um, small church, First Baptist Church of Elmont and Waco, which is a very small historically Baptist church. But um, as for what I growing up, I did grow up in a Southern Baptist church in Mejia. Um, and I remember when this idea of what we consider, and whenever I say biblical womanhood, I put air quotes around it, so you can just imagine that, but biblical womanhood began to shift. And um, even though I grew up in a world where most women were um, sort of the idea of the male breadwinner and the, and the female who stayed home, even though that was often considered to be an ideal, most people in my life it wasn't like that. It's interesting that um, the town that I grew up in, most women were actually working moms. Um, and so there, so I grew up in a space where working moms were more normal. I also remember seeing women more active. I remember the um, very active WMU, the Women's Missionary Organization. We had a WMU chapter, and I remember the women who were in the WMU chapter, especially when I was very young. And I also remember a shift, and I remember when um, the there were fewer women involved in the service. I remember when there began to be an emphasis placed on women's domestic responsibilities and being a wife and a mother and that being important. I remember one of the very earliest True Love Waits conferences. I'm not sure if it was the first of the True Love Waits or if it was something that predated it, but I went to one of those as um, a high school student. It was my sophomore year. And I remember um, I remember the narrative that I was being taught then that women were called to support their husbands and to be the helpmates to their husbands. And what was interesting about it is that it it's sort of the first time I really began to hear that being taught um, was as a young high school student. And as I moved from high school to Baylor, that narrative got stronger and stronger and stronger in my life. And now, of course, I know that it was accompanied by books like um, John Piper and Wayne Grudem's Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It was also accompanied by the rise of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, and so we see this emphasis on this type of biblical womanhood, air quotes again, who support who are helpmates to their husbands and are called primarily to home and to supportive roles. Um, and this is a narrative that in my lifetime began to shift. I wonder why that shift was happening. Is, is what's happening within the church downstream from culture? So people six days out of the week are at their jobs and, oh, hey, women are starting to be more elevated and women are asking for equal pay. And then that translates oh, into gosh. the church, or is it vice versa? No, it's definitely, it's culture feeding this. And um, if you look at it, culture, I mean, if you think about one of the biggest markers for this shift in theology within the Baptist tradition is what we call the conservative resurgence of 1979. And that was an intentional takeover of Baptist seminaries um, to combat what they called the liberal drift. And the liberal drift both had to do with theology and it had to do with gender. And so there was a significant concern about women becoming preachers and women becoming teachers in seminaries and teaching men. Um, and so you begin to hear, especially what the Pauline 
epistles, especially 1 Timothy 2 and 3, being quoted saying that women that are not allowed to be in teaching positions over men. Um, And so we see this happen in the seminaries, and we see this rhetoric begin to move into the Southern Baptist Convention, and then we see it begin to trickle down into our churches. It is a direct result of the Equal Rights Amendment and the fight against the Equal Rights Amendment, the fight against, you know, more and more women were moving into, um, into, the, into the workforce, as well as into pastoral ministry. Um, at the time of the conservative resurgence, there was around 6,000 women enrolled in MDiv programs um, in, in Baptist seminaries. You're hearing from Dr. Beth Allison Barr on staff here at Baylor University, who has written a fabulous book that is called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. I think about this cultural shift through the lens of my grandmother. So my grandmother, Ruby McLeod, she's going to be 95 in a few months, but she attended Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. She was there in the early 50s. Yeah. And she'd actually gone there because she wanted to be a missionary in China. And while she was in school, Mao had shut down the country to any Westerners. But when she was in seminary, the only two acceptable paths for a woman at that time were to go into music or to go into children's education. There were no opportunities for teaching or having any sort of primacy in a service. And I, th- I do think that overall we are much better having had elevated women and understanding that, hey, you know, if there is such a thing as a God, you can speak through this person and that person in all these seemingly disparate ways. But this idea of biblical womanhood, which, you know, is sort of defined, at least in your book, you know, it's the submissive wives, virtuous mothers, joyful homemakers. That's what a woman is created to be. She's created to be the helpmate. And largely, she's also created to not be a distraction for the men. And it seemed like that might have been what was some of the driving forces was keeping women sort of like this contagion, like, oh, we don't want you to cause the men to lust. So the women are going to be over here. And it seems like those barriers are being driven down. But there's still a number of churches that operate in that way. Right, exactly. And when we think about, you know, if we think about the rise of this idea of biblical womanhood with the church, it certainly parallels the rise of women's suffrage and um, the aftermath of World War I and World War II and then moving into the ERA. Um, You can actually trace this shift. Some of my new research right now is following the curriculum changes in Baptist seminaries, and it's absolutely fascinating because you can see this sort of ebb and flow of how women have been, um, you know, in the beginning were actually allowed in all pastoral classes, any sort of degrees they were allowed to do in Baptist seminaries, Southwestern included. And then you slowly begin after World War One. there's a shift where that begins to change. You then see it actually in the 40s and the 50s, the doors open back up and you start seeing women being allowed in more of these classes. But you also see the introduction of a new major, which is called religious education. And you begin to see women more filtered into the religious education degree than into the ministry degrees, although they were still allowed in the MDiv programs, um, but they're mostly being being filtered into these religious education degrees. And then um, as you move into the 70s and the 80s, it opens up again, and you see women actually being encouraged to be in more pastoral spaces, and then the door slams shut. 
beginning with the conservative resurgence, but if you think about the history of Southwestern, it slams shut when Paige Patterson becomes president of it. Um, And really, the Baptist world, the Southern Baptist world that we are living in right now is a consequence of um, men like Paige Patterson. And I think that alone should give us pause. I was royally entertained following you on Twitter last week, <laughs> and there was a, a recent kerfluffle with comments made by Jonathan Pakluda, yeah. who is the pastor at Harris Creek Baptist Church. JP was actually my guest on here last year talking about Easter. And long story short, in the sermon, he's telling a story about how a beautiful woman who, quote unquote, had everything in the right place, um, had essentially caused him to sin. And he says, this woman is evil. Can you tell a little bit about your perspective and your thoughts and and why you take issue with that reading of right. the story? So um, there is a long, uh, you know, I tell people when I when I step into something on Twitter, I don't do it lightly. And I gave great thought before I actually stepped into this situation. And one of the reasons I stepped into it is because the danger of this type of teaching about women and because I feel very responsible for my students and for um, for the female students who are at churches that they hear this type of teaching, and even for men. And so on the one hand, the way the story was, the story wasn't a bad story to tell. Um, I was a newlywed. I was tempted um, to to not be faithful to my wife, I resisted that temptation. Um, let me tell you, you know, how this worked for me. That's an okay story. Uh, some people would push back and say it's really not good for pastors to be the hero of their own sermons. Um, I actually study sermons. I don't know if you knew that, but I study medieval sermons. So that is interesting, thinking about the pastor putting himself in the place of the hero of the story. I can understand why some people would resist that. But overall, that story, there wasn't anything wrong with it. But the way it was presented is it presented the pastor as being the, um, in some ways, the the man who was attacked by this sinful, lascivious woman. And this woman, whole goal was to destroy him. And in fact, that's the language that he used was, she hates me. She hates my life. She wants to destroy me. And that attitude that, first of all, that a woman's body this objectifying of a woman's body um, and saying it so clearly from the pulpit, um, emphasizing that this is what women are for, um, as well as emphasizing the lust and the, you know, simply the way that it was described was disturbing, the objectifying of the woman. Um, but then what was even more disturbing was the emphasizing that she was the one who caused it, that it was her, that she hated him. Um, especially when, if you think about that type of situation, I mean, I have very, I have a lot of doubts. This story actually parallels one that's often told by pastors who are in very conservative places, who emphasize purity culture, which also emphasizes the objectification of women's bodies, as well as emphasizing that women, um, that men need to be afraid of women. You think about the Billy Graham rule, et cetera, that you shouldn't even be in rooms with women um, alone because you will be tempted. And and so this whole idea that there's something dangerous about a woman, um, she's the problem. And this attitude, um, makes women, you know, especially when women buy into that there's something wrong with them, 
Um, it also is something that if you think about young men, if they grow up with this idea that there is something innately sinful about a woman and her body, that that's all she's good for. But that's also something wrong with that. And it creates this it creates this fear. And it also I mean, I know people don't like to hear this, but it also feeds into what we call rape culture. And that's something that I think um, there is enough evidence, enough studies that are out there. While I would say most men who say things like this and even, you know, might respond, they're not going to become rapists. They're not going to become abusers. But this type of language enables abuse and it enables people who already sexually objectify women. And it also enables women to believe that there's something about them that's at fault. And that's also a very dangerous where we have these young girls who believe there's something about their body that's wrong, that it tempts men, and that they need, that it's their responsibility to safeguard their bodies to protect not themselves, but men. And all of those are elements of rape culture. These are obviously serious and important topics for the church itself to address. And I think that if we can believe that what's happening in the church is downstream from culture, Mm -hmm. it's totally natural that churches should be a lot more thoughtful about who are we putting in positions of power? How are we describing things like wanting to have a pure motive and, you know, running away from less, turning the other side? Um, It's really important to contextualize that. You seem so measured. I would imagine there are a lot of people who still think you are very way progressive and far out there. And how do you how do you deal with that, knowing that your words are easily misconstrued or your intentions are changed? So I think part of this um, also plays into the preconceptions about women who speak up for other women. And there's also a long history with this that people are considered um, if you speak up for other women, you are automatically labeled feminist, which is still often an F word in Christian spaces. And um, the reality is, is that God calls us to speak up for people who are vulnerable. And God calls us to speak up for people um, who are people who are oppressed. That is part of the the kingdom of heaven, what God calls us to do. And so it's really surprising to me when people see speaking up for others as being progressive, because I'm like, well, that's what Jesus said um, we should do. And so, I mean, I'm a very traditional Baptist. My husband and I are both very traditional Baptists. And so oftentimes when people try to put me in those categories, I just, I they don't know me. And so I'm, it, I can't control what sort of categories they put in. I can just speak what I know is true and what I feel called to do. You know, I tell people all the time, I never meant to write this book. I wrote this book because I felt like I could help. There is in Christianity often this, what Nadia Bowles-Weber calls the idolatry of ideology, which I think is such a succinct way to put where a lot of pastors and churches need to have clearly defined boxes where this fits and that fits. And when you have Mm -hmm. a progressive feminist who's finally speaking up after years of subjugation, I can understand why that would be difficult for them to process. But we know true religion is caring for widows and orphans. Like that's that's always been the call of Christians. And I want to close our conversation here on this. There's something very interesting happening in Kentucky right now with this Asbury revival, which had started as 
simply just a normal church service right. and now has spanned into a multi-day revival that's happening. And if you tune into the live screen of this, you see plenty of women there praying and on stage, and that's something that presumably wouldn't have happened 50 years ago. From your perspective, why is this Asbury revival happening, and what do you see as being some of the lasting, if any, impacts of this? Well, um, I am a very traditional Baptist. I, I wouldn't put myself in a progressive camp at all. And I believe that the Holy Spirit moves, and I believe that God is with us, and God tells us that when two or more are gathered in a space, that God is with us. And I believe that we are in a living in a very broken time. A lot, especially young people, have been very shattered the past few years. And it is not surprising to me to see them reaching out. So in some ways, I think maybe the Asbury revival might simply be an expression of how hard it has been for young Christians. And I hope it's a really healing experience for them. Dr. Beth Allison Barr is a professor at Baylor University. I encourage you all, find her on Twitter, Beth Allison Barr, two L's and Allison, two R's. I just think it's so important, the perspectives that you're sharing and being able to show to people, I'm a very Baptist person and I'm also very feminist. These are not worlds that can't collide. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us and I wish you and your family uh, a very restful and worshipful Lenten and Easter season. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Beth Allison Barr and to you for tuning into episode 145 of Downtown Depot here on Waco Public Radio. You can find me in between episodes on Facebook and Instagram at Waco Business News. And join me back here the third Friday of March for another interview with an inspiring small business owner, civic leader, or engaged citizen sparking Waco's revitalization. I'm Austin Meek, and you've been listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. Waco Business.